Now, this morning, as we look at this psalm um, that talks about David and something very significant that he did and what it meant for the people, um, we first have to talk about who came before David, and that was um, someone named Saul. Uh, you know, uh, but before we even talk about Saul, we have to talk about something very important that gives you a good idea of exactly where Saul himself was coming from. You're like, man, this is going to be a long sermon. If we're like, before we do this, we're going to do this, but before we do this, we're going to do this. Yeah, we're going to be here for a while. Um, you know, it, they, they say it's very common that um, people find God um, in very hard and difficult circumstances. You find yourself backed up against a wall in life in desperate need of help and you don't have anyone else to turn to. And it might be in that moment that you finally turn to God. I remember when I was uh, in high school, I was a part of a youth group and we went on a, on a trip um, and uh, one of the nights that we were on this trip, um, kind of out in the woods, we, uh, they decided that we would do like a night game in the woods. And as any good youth group game, uh, there was a very thin line between uh, this game would go well and it would be total mayhem and disaster and they'd have to call in air rescue. Um, but the whole point of this game was basically you get from point A to point B and there's a bunch of leaders, you know, kind of in between and they have to catch you and you have to try to be secret and you have to try to get around, you know, and, and uh, get around them and try to get to the different point with your partner. Well, me and this partner decided that we were the smartest of all the high school age students. And so what we would do is we would, um, we didn't, we didn't need to really stay in the area they told us to. I mean, if we wanted to really be sneaky and we wanted to really uh, win the game, we would just go outside the bounds of the area they told us to. What we didn't realize, because we grew up in the city in Southern California, was that um, when you go outside the bounds of the area they told you, you're now just in the woods in the dark alone and you're lost hopelessly. We didn't really have a lot of survival skills. We didn't have a lot of directional skills. Uh, couldn't read stars, didn't understand moss on trees, things like that. And as it got darker and darker, we were more and more hopelessly lost thinking this is it. This is how we're going to go. Uh, two kids that barely know each other who just got teamed up in a game uh, who were using uh, the, the glowing face of a watch for a light. We just kept hitting the button on this guy's watch, and that was the light that we had. And I remember being hopelessly lost for 30 minutes and feeling at that point like this was it. This was the end. This was how I was going to go. And I remember in that point of desperation, just kind of crying out to God and saying, God, if you get us out of this, if you save us from this, I promise you, God, I promise you that I will read my Bible every single day for the rest of my life. Uh, God did get us out of it. I know that's a surprise, but here I am. Uh, God got us out of it uh, pretty quickly after that, actually, although we did uh, come out pretty dirty with a lot of holes, and I don't think our relationship was very strong afterwards. We were kind of turned on each other at the end there, and it became Lord of the Flies. But God did get me out of it, and I had a pretty good, solid, maybe week of, of reading the Bible. I mean, it was really good. You know, I was really fired up and I was willing to live out that commitment. And when I would get weak, I would remember, you know, God saved me from certain deaths. So it's the least I can do for him is to read my Bible. Uh, it is not uncommon in situations to find God and then in those moments be like, I want to follow God because he either got me through this or he got me out of this or he made sense out of all the craziness that is going on in the world around me. But it can be difficult to follow God um, if that's the only way that you know of him. 
You know, Scripture tells us that God is indeed drawing us to him. He is drawing all of us to him. He's drawing his children to him. And so the circumstances of your life, the things that you're dealing with, the good and the bad, uh, the sicknesses and the job struggles and the, uh, the good or difficult marriage, the, the good or wayward child that you might be dealing with, the pandemic that you're living through, all of those things are things that God, you can be certain above all else, that one thing for sure is happening in those things, which is that God is using that thing to draw you closer to him. And he does that. That's very good news for us. That explains a lot about how many of us find God and about how the things that it takes for us to ultimately reach out to him. Those of us who believe in and follow him already, we know that God is still drawing us to him in these ways. um, And that's a very good thing. So we find God. We, We find God. We find him in difficult situations. We find him maybe because we find things impossible without him. And, uh, and then comes the question of what does it look like for us to actually maybe try to walk with God, uh, knowing that God does good things, he gives good things, he's kind of powerful, he kind of has a lot figured out. But we kind of see him sometimes even as a little bit of a means to an end. He's kind of the way out of the things that we were in. Um, The difficulty with that kind of a faith is it's sort of an incomplete faith. It's a faith in which one can uh, read about God and try to serve God, but if you have an incomplete sort of a, a faith, one in which God saves you from the difficult things that pop up and happen, and that's it. And then the rest of the time, you're kind of okay without him. You'll find yourself in a faith where you're supposed to feel like you have answers, but you don't really have answers. Uh, You're supposed to feel like uh, you're resilient, but you don't feel like the faith is making you much more resilient. You, You feel like this faith you hear is supposed to reshape who you are, but it doesn't exactly feel like it's reshaping who you are. It's supposed to help you grow into the likeness and the spirit of Jesus, yet it doesn't necessarily seem to always help you do that. The difference between a faith that really fully works and one that doesn't is a faith that is kind of partial and a faith that is complete. And if you want to talk about a faith that is sort of partial, a good example of that is someone like Saul, which was the king before David. We spent a long time as a church studying uh, a book of the Old Testament that walked us through in 1 Samuel what it looked like for God to call this leader for his people and to, uh, and to make him the leader, and then kind of the weird way that Saul led. There were moments where it seemed like this guy was the person you should want to try to be. God seemed to be doing things in his midst and through him, and then there were other times that Saul just seemed to so completely blow it. But one of the things that's clearest about King Saul is this. Saul didn't really seem to understand God. He didn't really seem to understand how it all worked together and what it was that God actually wanted. Saul sometimes wanted to try very hard, but in the end, because he didn't seem to really understand God, he, he made a lot of mistakes and a lot of difficult things happen. You can be very familiar with a thing. You can be so, you can, you can have experience with it, and if you don't really understand it, then you can find yourself really struggling. Anybody who knows me personally knows uh, this uh, is something that uh, I experience when it comes to sports. Uh, I can watch sports, I can, uh, I can talk to people about sports, but uh, when I attempt to play sports, it's very sad, it's very horrible, because I don't seem to totally, fully understand exactly how these things work. When I was a kid, I played Little League Baseball for uh, part of a season, 
And no matter how hard they tried to explain the rules to me, I just couldn't figure out how this game was supposed to work. Uh, You may have watched some kids play Little League, and you may be like, yep, I've seen that happen in real time. You should have stuck with it, Ed. You'll figure it out. It wasn't good. Believe me, it wasn't good. I found a video on the internet the other day. It's extremely short, and it perfectly sums up exactly what this looks like. I'm going to show it to you guys. There you go. Steve, can you play that one more time? It's so quick. You really got to, you really got to, there we go. See, you see, they get so much right about baseball and how it works, right? You hit the ball, you run to the base, you throw the ball, the person's coming, you catch the ball first. So many things that are right, but there's that one important piece where you're not actually throwing the ball at people. Now, that can be confusing for somebody who doesn't fully understand it because there's lots of sports where maybe it seems like you throw the ball at people. Definitely every youth group game, you throw the ball at people. In fact, probably you could call that youth group baseball, and that's a thing that people are going to be doing at youth groups in a couple of years where you just play baseball, but instead of mitts, you just throw the ball at each other as hard as you can, and then everyone laughs, right? You can, you can kind of get something, but if you don't really understand the most important aspects of the thing, you're still not very close to it. This was what it was like for King Saul. He often would appeal to God in times when he needed God's deliverance, when the people needed his deliverance. He knew God was powerful. He knew God could do lots of amazing things. He knew God could defeat enemies. He knew that God could do all kinds of stuff. He had called him himself to be the king, but he only really knew to call on God when he needed him and when he thought the people could benefit from what help God could give them. The rest of the time, Saul really struggled to actually see much of a point when it came to him and God. Saul had this sort of partial faith. And when we move from King Saul to King David, we get to see the difference between someone who has an incomplete faith and one that is more complete, what we look at in King David. The difference between David and Saul, the difference between a faith where you see good and value maybe in God, you know there are things he can give you and there are times you need to depend on him and turn to him, or maybe certain holidays when he seems extra special than the whole rest of the year, and a faith that is complete, the difference of them is this. The complete faith is one in which a person chooses to actually shape their life and allow their life to be shaped by who God is. It isn't just about professing that you love God and that he's powerful. It is about actually working to allow your life to be shaped around who God is and then your very heart being changed in that process. Because David was a man whose heart was after God, he knew to pursue God in the right way for the right things and to see all of reality in a way that was actually real. What David had that Saul didn't have, that we read about in this psalm that depicts the moments when he first became king, is this. David had obedience. He understood that in order to truly follow God, he would have to choose to submit his very life to all of who God is. There was a difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. There was a difference between proclaiming things about God in the foxhole and in the moment of trial and from the hospital bed and actually choosing on the good day to say, God, what is it that you have for me today? 
rather than, God, I'll see you next time I hit a crisis. We're going to talk this morning about obedience, what it means to actually live that way. This is a fun topic to talk about. I gave a couple of people warnings over the week, like, just so you know, uh, obedience on Sunday. So you may want to skip it or you may want to invite a bunch of people, you know. Now, here's the caveat for this when we talk about this, okay? This is very important. This is very important. This is not a message, a passage, a psalm that God is putting before you this morning so that you can think about all the other people in in your life who need this, Okay. Because when we start to talk about something like obedience, it gets very easy to be like, oh boy, are there a lot of people I know who really need to learn how to be more obedient in the Lord, like me, okay? If you're obedient, great, just enjoy the ride, but don't think about other people, just don't do that, it's very hard. But this is one of those times when it's incredibly important not to. The beginning of our psalm this morning says this, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. What this is talking about is the Ark of the Covenant. You see, when Saul was king, the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a box made of wood adorned with gold. It has something on top of it called the mercy seat. And the idea of the Ark, God told his people to make this thing, and that uh, if they made it, and if they worshipped him correctly, that God's spirit would dwell. It was like, there's a reason they say the top of it is a seat, that God's spirit would dwell upon this Ark. God wouldn't be just contained inside of it. It wasn't a way of saying, now you have a magic lamp, and I go wherever this thing goes, because what happened happens is that uh, as, they, as they treat this thing the way they're supposed to, as they carry this the way they're supposed to, then God is present before them. And it would be a symbol of his blessing onto them. They would bring it into battle. They would succeed in battle. Well, the Philistines are pretty smart. They figured this out at one point. They're the bad guys. And when they were battling at one time against Saul, they stole the Ark of the Covenant. And then they learned why you shouldn't steal the Ark of the Covenant. Because they took it into their territory, they put it in this temple, and all of a sudden all these bad things started to happen. Uh, Because God was like, I don't belong here and you shouldn't have me. And so people started to get sick, they were plagued with these boils and all kinds of horrible things happened. And so the Philistines finally put it on a cart with some oxen and they just did this on the back of one of them and they sent them off in the right direction. And eventually the ark would come back to the land. Well, when they got it back, they decided to just put it in a place that was kind of on the outskirts because everybody was a little bit freaked out by this thing. And one thing I think Saul knew enough at that time was I don't maybe get how God works enough to know how to even handle this thing. Uh, Because that was at a point where things weren't going well. So it, it, it goes back, and it's just kind of somewhere in the Holy Land. Well, when David first becomes king, his first act of business, the first thing that David chooses to do is to say before anything else, we're going to go out. He assembles a huge group of people together. We are going to go out and we're going to find the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to bring it back from where it is in these distant lands. They find it basically in a place they describe as like woods or a forest. And we're going to bring it back into a, into a tent and ultimately a temple because the most important thing in my time as king is going to be that we bring God in and we say he is the one who's at the center of everything. Now think for a moment about if you know anything about David, you know that the years leading up to him becoming king were impossibly difficult for him. They were fraught with all kinds of uncertainty and all kinds of exhaustion. And so when David finally becomes king, 
and finally is in charge of God's people, and their enemies are finally at bay for the first time in a while, the first thing that he would choose to do is an important thing. It says a lot. But the first thing that David does is recognize something. He recognizes, even though I am now in control, even though I am now the king of this place, which means I'm the one who gets to decide what happens, the most important thing for me to do on day one is to make it clear to myself and everyone that I'm not actually the one in control that I'm not actually the one in charge. And how will it be clear to people if the first order of business before anything else is that we bring God into our midst and we make it clear that he is the one in control. When it comes to obedience, the first thing that is true about it, and it's what's the hardest thing about it, is this is what obedience comes down to. It is choosing to not be in control. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a child of God, and to say, God, I seek to live in obedience to you, is first and foremost saying, I am choosing to not be in control anymore. Kids are constantly saying to adults, I can't wait to be an adult, because then I can do what I want. Then I can be in charge. Then I can be in control, as you're like changing their diaper or something for them, you know. Then I can do what I want. And then so, so we, we hear something like this, we go, no, I, I, uh, one of the nice things about being an adult is the fact that you get to do what you want. You get to be in control. You get to decide how things are going to go. And you might hear that and be like, no, 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 Ed, that's not how I live my life. I follow other people. Other people tell me what to do. I, uh, my boss tells me what to do. Uh, the government tells me what to do. My spouse tells me what to do. My kids seem to tell me what to do a lot of the time. Um, I have no problem in situations submitting and giving over control because I know that that's what makes the world go round. We can't all just do whatever we want. But is that really the way that we are? Is that really the way that we choose to live our lives? I mean, sure, your boss tells you what to do until, until you start to think for a while, I don't think my boss really knows what they're doing. Uh, or, I think my boss is being pretty unreasonable. I don't think my boss really recognizes all that they have in front of them when I walk in the room, right? They're too demanding. You may put up with that for a while, but it's very common. It's very likely that uh, if you have to put up with that long enough, you'll say, listen, I'm willing to let someone else be in control, but only when it's someone that I really actually look to in a certain way. Then I'm willing to let them have control. Otherwise, I don't think it's going to work for me. You may let the government tell you what to do, unless, of course, you don't agree with what the government is telling you what to do. Then it gets a little more complicated. We say that's overreach of the government. That's none of their business. Or this is a dumb law. That doesn't apply to people like me. It's for other people. Or we decide that we're some kind of sort of unusually self-sufficient and productive member of society, and so a lot of laws or a lot of control that comes from the government, it isn't really about me, it's about other people. You know, I'm doing fine on my own. This happens on both sides of the aisle, right? Uh, groups of people that will say, uh, get out of my life, government. Don't tell me what to do, government. Uh, but we do that because even though we say we're willing to give over control, even in a system where laws are enacted and things like that by our elected leaders, we, will, we are very good at finding ways to not do that. We're very good at finding reasons why in this instance or with this leader or with this administration or in this situation or in this time, I shouldn't have to do that and neither should you. You may let your spouse tell you what to do. 
But oftentimes, you follow that with resentment, with anger, with frustration, uh, and uh, your relationship goes sour. Although we may want to believe that when we become adults, we learn how to submit when we need to, I think in reality, and just, just think about this for a second, I think we're really good at constructing lives and circumstances in which we can be as in control as possible. Over time, given the right set of circumstances, we will try to shape our lives in such a way that we can retain control as much as possible in the things that matter the most to us. It is extremely difficult for us to have put ourselves in situations where we're letting go of control. And this is ultimately what obedience comes down to, especially in a relationship with God. Scripture tells us we're rebellious by nature of the fall. We're also a country of rebels. It's in, our, it's in our sort of DNA as a nation, right? We threw the tea in the harbor. We said, don't tax me without representation. And that's where we began. We're a people who don't like being told what to do. It's unusual for a person to choose to willingly submit to another person, to choose to give up our rights, our control in life to another, even to God himself, God himself, and none of us are really naturally very good at it. We'll do something if it makes perfect sense to us, and we call that obedience much of the time. We'll choose to head down a path that we think is the best path. We just want God to hear our side, our thoughts, and our take. Thanks for the suggestion, God. I'll totally take that into account, but in the end, I'm in charge, and I think I probably know the best thing to do. David was a king, okay? He was a king. He didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do. He didn't have to go anywhere he didn't want to go. He could make any rule that he wanted. He could do anything that he wanted. In his worst moments, as a sinful person, he gave in to that temptation and did some terrible things that he shouldn't have done. But he was free to do those things. He had the ability to make those choices without fear of repercussion from other people. David was the king of Israel. Finally, this great king that could be a person after God's heart. But instead of that meaning that what God wants is a person in a place to decide how everything's going to be, what David knew to do in that moment was to say, the only thing to do here is to, from day one, make it as clear as possible to these people and to myself that God is the one who's going to be in control in this nation, not me. This is a very hard thing for us to do, especially autonomous adults living where we live in the day and age in which we live today. We have a lot of freedom to, like I said, structure our lives in such a way that we don't have to lose control. And we really don't like the feeling of being out of it. But what does it look like to be a follower of Christ when it comes to obedience? It looks like this. God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do today? That's a hard question for us to ask. We'll ask him for his input, his advice. We'll seek encouragement. We'll definitely look to him in times of crisis. And we may meet him initially in those times. But the difficulty of saying, God, you're in control here, not me, is hard for us. In fact, I think we even like to get to a point where we believe that maybe we've become the kind of Christian or the kind of person after a few years of following Jesus that now 
our instincts are God's instincts. Now what I want is godly, right? Everything I want is just like what a good Christian person probably wants to do. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. So I don't even have to ask God what he wants. I just know it's what I want. In fact, why aren't other people listening to what I want? Because it's what they should be doing too. God, you decide what I do here. I won't assume what I want is what you want. I'm going to ask you and I'm going to say, God, how can I be and live in obedience to you today? It's not an easy thing to do, but it's the first step in understanding what obedience is. We read this about where he ultimately, uh, we, we read this in the next couple of verses here. Behold, we heard it, uh, we heard of it in Ephrathah, in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So they actually found it in the far off places, but they went out to search for it. They said, let us go to his dwelling place, is what the people would ultimately say when the ark was found. Let us worship at his footstool. David chose to go a very long way off and search for something and do what God wanted him to do in that, but what we also see about obedience and what he chose to do was when he chose to do it. Obedience is choosing now over choosing later. So uh, it's not really just enough to say, what is it that you want, God? But it's also important to be able to say, uh, uh, to be able to do what it is that God wants us to do now rather than putting it off and saying, I'll do it one day, I'll do it later, I'll do it down the road. Because isn't that another way that we're extremely good at being able to maybe hang on to some of the control that we want to have in a situation that's a little bit scary and uncertain? David's first act as king was to take people with him to go and move the ark of the Lord. Man, you think about all the things he could have done. You think about all the things he would have liked to have done. He talks about rest, getting into his bed. He talks about being in his home and building a home for himself. He talks about a palace. You think about all the good things that a leader should do right away, you know? There's a lot of things on that list. There's a whole kingdom that he's got to get in order. It's probably a mess. He could have built a palace. He could have appointed a cabinet. He could have just dedicated a year to seeing people and places in the kingdom, you know, just go on kind of a tour of the kingdom and meet everybody and, like, you know, meet, kiss the babies and shake the hands and all that stuff. You know, he could have gotten situated in Jerusalem. Number one rule of leadership, right? Don't change anything first year. Just kind of hang out. Just kind of get the feel for things, right? There's, there's no reason that David has to do this right away. But David knew that in order to actually let this kingdom, in order to lead this kingdom the way that God wanted him to, he was going to have to get the Ark of the Covenant back, and it was going to have to happen now, not later. And I think that for many of us, obedience is a matter of doing what God wants first, not just having it on the list somewhere else of all the other things. We say, I'll give my money, and I'll give it sacrificially. After, hang on, after we get some of these things that we really want and that we really need as a family right now. After I save enough and I pay off enough, after I buy a house or I take a few vacations that I really need for my mental health and well-being, I completely intend to do it. I completely intend to be the kind of person who gives of my financial resources sacrificially for the sake of the kingdom. And I will get to it. I will. Just not today. We say, I'll put down the bottle. We say, I'll close the computer. 
We say, I'm going to delete social media that's maybe messing up the way that I see myself or, or some of the other people in the world around me. We say, I'm going uh, to do those things because I know that probably these ways that I have of sort of coping or just kind of distracting myself or just kind of like getting through the day and moving on to tomorrow and not having to think too hard, I'll do it. I fully intend to do it. And I see that that's probably something God wants me to do. And I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. First thing, as soon as I get up, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll take the time to sit down and read the Bible. I'll actually close the door. Or maybe I'll sit down with my spouse. I'll sit down with my kids. Maybe I'll sit down with my neighbor. And I'll actually try praying with some of these people. I'll go back to church. I'll I'll go back. I'll go back. I will go back. I intend to go back. I'm totally planning on going back. I'll I'll start singing one day. One day I'll start singing. I'm going to do it at some point when I'm really comfortable. I'm going to do it. I'll take a Sabbath day. I'll take a rest. I'll take a break. I'll do these things that God tells us his people do. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get to it. I completely intend to do it. We can talk about it all day. Oh, yeah, let's talk about it. Oh, I totally agree. Oh, my gosh, it's so important. These things are so important. We have to have these things. We have to do these things. And I'm totally going to get to it. I plan on getting to it once things settle down tomorrow. I'll tell someone about Jesus, even though I am terrified to do that. I'll start to be around people again, even though I'm terrified to do that. I'll join a group of people. I'll dip my toe into community, as scary and freezing cold as that water might be. I'm saying freezing cold because, you know, that's the kind of water you don't want to get in. Not because I think community's freezing cold. That doesn't make sense. Some probably are. Okay, some probably are. That's a sermon for another day. I will actually step out and offer to invest in another person in their walk with God, to disciple somebody, to invest in somebody, and not just have it be about myself. I'll begin talking to my child about God, even though I may not know how to do that. I may not have any idea how to do that and feel like I actually know exactly the right things to say and what to do. I'll stop saying tomorrow and I'll do these things today. Or I'll do the thing that God has put in front of me to do. I'll do it today and I won't do it later. One of the most difficult pieces of scripture that I have ever read in the company of a non-believer and they just could not wrap their mind around, is this. In Matthew, where Jesus says this, we read, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. If you want to talk about the difficult sayings of Jesus, as I was going through the Bible with a friend who wasn't a Christian, they totally got a lot. They, they agreed with a lot. They thought a lot made sense. Things that I didn't think they would like or get or agree with or connect with. But when this came up, they said, that is the most unreasonable, cruel, cold-hearted thing I've ever heard. And if you understand about, uh, you know, the culture in which Jesus was talking, um, someone going and burying a member of their family is a much bigger process than just sitting at the bedside of a person and holding their hand as they're in their final days. It really has to do with an estate It has to do with uh, all of the resources. I mean, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When a member in your family passes away and you become the executor of their estates, 
or when parents pass away and you uh, go into their house and you realize they didn't, they didn't get rid of very much stuff. And so now uh, this is going to be a big thing that we're going to do. It's going to be filled with memories and difficulties. It's going to make me think a lot about the past and maybe about the future. There is so much in walking with a person through the final days of life and then all that comes after. And what this person was saying was, let me settle my family's estate. Let me be here with my family in what seems to be the most crucial time. And Jesus' response to this disciple is, come now. Do it now. Follow me now. I think this surprises us sometimes when we encounter it. But what David recognized about obedience to God was that it was something that we do now, not later. And that's as much of a difficulty for us as letting go of control to God. So many of us want to obey God because we know that his way is better than ours. We know that his way leads to life. But I'm not ready to do it yet. This just isn't the right time. Let's talk about it on January 1st. I'll be stuffed full of Christmas cookies. I'll be hungover. I'll be broke. I'll be full of regrets. And then I'll probably be ready to make some big changes in my life. And that will be the day that we can talk about obedience. But not right now. Obedience is choosing now over later, and it's choosing to give God control. But there's also something else that's true of what it is for us to say, God, I want to actually follow you and let me shape the choices that I make in my life, the way that I choose to live and interact with other people, the way I will even see the world, and the way I will see myself. I think one of the misunderstandings about obedience is that it's always the hardest thing that we can do. Obedience is often choosing the easier thing. We think of obedience as choosing something difficult. That's why we wouldn't do it, right? We wouldn't choose, we, we would choose the easier thing. We're doing the easier thing maybe. That's something that makes it so unappealing. But much of what God calls his people to do in Scripture is easier than what they're currently doing. It's easier than the things that they want to hold on to. And yet, because we live in the flesh, because we're a fallen people, because we want to be our own gods, we will often choose very difficult paths, very difficult things, because we still want the control, and we don't want to do something now. One of the most abundant uh, commands given in Scripture is to rest, is to take Sabbath. And there was a season where we as a church took a kind of a rest from a lot of the stuff we were doing. And we talked a lot about rest and Sabbath. We talked about how um, it's a command with a promise and how um, nothing says I'm God more than I can't rest because everything will fall apart. Rest is important for us to recognize our place in this created order that God has made. We must be able to take a day and to truly rest. We must be able to uh, take regular periods of time where we just allow God to restore and replenish our souls. But for many of us, that is the hardest command that there is. And we won't do it. We won't do what seems like the easier thing. Another command that Jesus gives more than any other is do not 
fear. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Seems like it'd be easier, right? Just stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Stop fearing. Why does he command it so much? And why does it factor into talking about obedience? Because for many of us, the choice to walk away from those things, to turn those things off, is to say, I am going to be obedient to God. And when he says to me to trust him and to not fear, I'm going to do it because it's an act of obedience. Scripture tells us to forgive people when they wrong us. And if you've lived a lot of life bearing grudges, holding on to things, carrying the weight of those things around, you know how much harder you're making your own life by hanging on to those things instead of choosing to forgive. Forgiveness is easier than the alternative. And obedience is to choose that. Saying that we're sorry to people. Humility. Humility can be easier than the alternative, pride. Saying that we're sorry, going to others when we're wrong, can be easier in many ways. Doesn't always feel easy, right? I was talking to a parent this week who was telling me about a, their student who was in college, and, or their child who was in college, and they were at home visiting family, and they blew up on them, and they yelled at their parents, and they said, I hate you, and they said, you don't understand me, and they said, this is why I never want to hang out with you or whatever, and then they left. And then a few minutes later, they got a text from them and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, and uh, I love you, and I'm sorry, and that was it. And um, they were telling me about how much it meant to get that text. And we were talking about how um, we have a tendency to think that, like, what really tells you everything about a person is maybe some of the things they do, like storming out and yelling and stuff like that. I think what tells you more about a person is the things that they apologize for, the things that we're able to come and say we're sorry for. That says probably more about who we are than about all the good things that we did that never needed apologizing for. But... uh, It seems so difficult, even though it's easy to do. We often think of obedience as always choosing disciplined, hard, painful, sacrificial things, when much of the time what God is trying to tell his children to do is just take it easy and trust him in the next step that we're going to take. But for many of us, truly trusting in God and letting him be in control is a very scary thing, and we have to be told that it's the right thing to do, not just to do it when we feel finally comfortable letting go of the reins. We read this in verses 8 through 10. Slides are all messed up. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. What David is, is well, what the psalmist is, is reciting here, what they're remembering is the reward that came to God's people because of this act of obedience. And the reward that came to his people was this. God's presence. The, the reward for obedience to God is God. He does not promise us that he will give us better circumstances. 
He does not promise us that he will get rid of the difficult things that we're facing. What he promises us is that the more of our lives that we can give over to him, the more we will experience God himself. And trust me when I say that the more God that you experience in your life, the better you will be. Remember, God is drawing us to him. His desire is that we let go of these things that get in between us and him, that mess things up and complicate things as we attempt to do what he intended to do, which is to be in charge of what's going on around us. The results of obedience in the Bible are pretty extreme. People disobey God, especially in the Old Testament, you read, they disobey God, bad stuff happens. If people didn't choose to seek out God's will, they often experienced a lot of suffering. We read in the psalmist, on the other hand, Arise and go to your resting place, Lord. Be in our presence, in our midst. We read further on into the psalm the reward that the people will experience. Their priests will be clothed with righteousness and with salvation. He's saying that your priests will actually be good priests. They'll actually uh, live out righteousness in what they're talking about because they had experienced so many examples of corrupt priests and people coming with the word of God and not really living it out themselves. Clothed not only with righteousness, but with salvation, which means like because God will be in your midst as you come and you, and you seek him in his presence, as you come, uh, you will experience salvation. You won't just be singing some songs and following some rules and and learning some new things and trying to be a disciplined person and knowing how to condemn your enemies and it being a little bit clearer who's good and who's bad. You'll actually experience salvation, and that's a very powerful thing. David sought God, ultimately, first and foremost, because he longed for more of God and for God's presence to be there with his people. God promises to give himself to David and his people, and he promises to give himself to us if we allow him to have control, if we choose to obey him in the way that we live and have a fuller faith in doing that. Our world tells us that uh, the biggest problem in most of our lives is that we don't love ourselves enough, that we have a, a low view of ourselves and that we don't really love ourselves as much as we should, as much as we need to. And that's really the reason why people do all the horrible things that they do. If I'm coming to God each day, not just in my crisis asking him what he desires, what his desires are, what his wants. If I'm coming to God each day and I'm not just coming to him in my crises, I'm asking God each day, what is it, God, that you desire? What is it that you want? I am also coming to God each day, a God who loves me, And who tells me that? A God whose love for me is so much greater than I can even love myself or than you can even love me or than anything can make me feel loved. That I am more fulfilled in his love than than I would be with those things. Which means I can now go out and live a different kind of life. Be a different kind of person. A person who can love people without needing those people to love me back. A person who can, uh, who can endure things without defending myself all the time and fighting all the time because I know that God loves me. And nothing that happens is going to change that. 
And because I continue to come to him, seeking how to live in obedience to him as often as I can, I'm also coming to a God who will tell me again and again of his incredible, immense love for me. And I'll think I get it, and I don't get it. And he'll show me that I don't get it, and that it's even bigger than I thought it was. And then years down the road, I'll think I finally figured it out, and I can tell other people about it, and don't have to think about it myself, and God will do something and show me that it's even bigger than I thought it was. And I can be even more greatly changed by it than I thought I could be. We talked about forgiveness before and how important it is to forgive other people. But Scripture tells us something important about forgiveness. It says you really can't fully forgive others if you haven't experienced the forgiveness of God yourself. If you're not coming from a place of, man, I was forgiven. I only have life and hope because of the grace of God and the mercy of God. That makes me into somebody who then sees forgiving others as something that is possible. I can do it. Because I know what it feels like to need forgiveness. And I know that I didn't deserve the forgiveness that I received. If I'm coming to God each and every day and I'm seeking his face, then what I'm seeing from him and I'm hearing from him is just how forgiven I am. As I attempt to live a life of obedience and I do it imperfectly, I ask for and experience God's forgiveness regularly. And that might make me into a more gracious person. It might make me into a more merciful person. It might make me shape me into someone who can actually go and reap the reward of what that is. We talked about the last couple of weeks, perseverance, what it means to persevere, to bear up under the weight of something, to keep going, knowing that it will be difficult, keep going. We persevere because we have a picture of a heavenly home that we look to one day, and because our God gives us purpose in the perseverance of what we do. We're not just doing it to do it. We're not just doing it to be more tough Um, people who can accomplish more things. We're doing it because we have a reason that we can persevere. God has given it to us. There are so many things that we make the mistake of looking to for satisfaction and fulfillment that just destroy us. So many vices and so many things that we come to in order to just be a little bit more satisfied, a little bit more fulfilled, to just take it a little bit easier. And the good news is, in seeking this, in seeking to live this way, and being blessed with the very presence of God in our lives more, we are fulfilled and filled up by Him in such a way that these things have less of an appeal to us. The Christian doesn't just go out and try to stop doing all the bad things they're doing. Uh, The Christian recognizes that God is the only way that you can try and find real fulfillment. And the more that we experience that in him, the more that we're able to see those things lose their power over us. When I say that our reward is God himself, what I'm saying ultimately isn't just that we get to have this kind of spiritual presence of God in kind of an abstract way in our lives. What I'm saying is that God is more present in our lives, the more of our lives that we're able to turn over to him in obedience. And as that happens, the things that we experience, the ways that we are changed, is a much greater reward than anything else that we could ask for and receive. God is drawing us to him. He is bringing us to him through the circumstances that we're going through, through the difficulty, and even through the joys and the wonderful times. 
But if we only know him as the God who is there when we need him, when we want him, and we don't make ourselves available and our lives available and say, God, what do you want in this life here? Then the faith that we'll experience is so incomplete. The good news is that uh, we know that, that there's no way that we can perfectly obey God. We know that there is no way that we can ever live a life that is good enough, um, that we'll be able to do just enough that we can actually be some kind of a, of a good, sinless person and we won't be in need of him anymore, which is why the good news of the gospel tells us that we aren't trying to be obedient to God so that we can attain something. We've already attained it. We've already obtained it because of what Jesus did in dying on the cross for us. And so as we continue to sing, as we continue to celebrate communion together as a church family, we choose to focus not on all the things that we think we can accomplish for God, but to celebrate with grateful hearts what it is that he's done to give us an ability to be in a relationship with him. Let's pray.